Genesis chapter 18, verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Behold, I have undertaken to speak with the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Suppose forty are found there. For the sake of the forty, I will not do it. Let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. I will not do it if I find 30 there. Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Genesis chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's home and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you. And do to them as you please, only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. 
but they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place? For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become very um, has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I... I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife, behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, The smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in the cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. The younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore him a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray.
Father, I would simply pray this morning that you give my hearers ears to hear and give me a mouth to speak. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, man. Um, okay. Well, I, I probably should have given this caveat earlier, but uh, if you have small children in here today, you might want to consider where you have them in this service. Um, I'm personally not planning on, not planning, I'm not Aaron, so, you know, <laughs> I'm not planning on saying anything explicit. He makes gaffes. You guys all know that. You love him for it. Um, I'm not planning on saying anything explicit, but you all just heard the same text I did, Okay. Um, also, I'm going to tell you now that feel free to get up and refill your coffee at any point in here today, stretch out your legs, go to the bathroom. Um, again, you guys all heard the same text I just did, and most of you know that brevity is not my spiritual gift. All right, so who wants to trade places with me today? <laughs> like, which of you feels like getting up here and talking about a Bible story that involves threats of violent gang rape? Who here feels like talking about some good old-fashioned um, incest? <laughs> Stumbled over that word. Don't want to say it. Who of you here wants to get up here and talk about the fiery wrath of God? Which of you feels like coming up here and instructing the rest of us how to pray? You know, what, <laughs> what do you do with this story? Like, seriously, I mean, how do you make sense of this story taking place in the biblical narrative? Like, how do you make sense of such an unholy story occurring in the most holy of books? Like, what is its purpose? Why is it here? Now, to be clear, like, this is not the first time we've confronted something uncomfortable in the book of Genesis it was just a few short chapters a day that God looked upon all of humanity and saw that every intention of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And so he caused a flood that wiped out nearly every living creature on the face of the earth. And it's a little ironic to me that today we decorate children's rooms with depictions of an old man and all his happy little animals in a boat underneath a rainbow. I suppose the human corpses and animal carcasses are just slightly out of frame. You guys can thank our old pastor, Gary McQuinn, for that. The guy had a penchant for accuracy, I guess. So where am I going with this? Well, for one, when you see God judge the cities of the plain with fire, you're actually supposed to think of the time he judged the whole world with water. In a lot of ways, this story of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah picks up on a biblical pattern. But not only does it pick up on a pattern, it begins to reshape it so that you and I begin to pattern our lives in a certain way. Now, if you recall, we've already seen a pattern of corrupt and wicked cities throughout the, the stories of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 4, you have the city of Cain, the city established by the man who murdered his own brother. In Genesis chapter 11, right after the flood, you have the city of Babel, the city designed so that humanity can make a name for themselves. And now in Genesis 18 and 19, you have the city of Sodom. What will it be known for? You're supposed to see the pattern. Kingdom of Sodom, kingdom of Cain, kingdom of Babel. It's the kingdom of man. And it's on a collision course with the kingdom of God. 
So here's what I want you guys to get out of this today. On top of being more equipped to be able to read your Bible by yourself, here's what I want you guys to get out of this today. If we pattern our lives on the basis of the kingdom of man, our end is destruction and judgment. But when we pattern our lives on the basis of the kingdom of God, we receive mercy and eternal life. Again, if we pattern our lives on the basis of the kingdom of man, our end is destruction. But when we pattern our lives on the basis of the kingdom of God, the result is mercy and eternal life. And so our text today unfolds in three acts. First, we see the prayer of Abraham, then the sin of Sodom, and then the legacy of Lot. And I believe that's in your notes, so I won't repeat it. Okay, so first off, first act, the prayer of Abraham. Now, honestly, we could spend our whole time today examining this passage, and you might actually feel like we do by the time we get to the end of it. But all I want you to see here is the invitation and intimacy of intercessory prayer. The invitation and intimacy of intercessory prayer. So for context here, Abraham just hosted God and two other men, who we later find out are angels, for a meal. It was over this meal that God not only reaffirmed his promise to Abraham that he would make him a mighty nation and a father of the nations, but in the course of this meal, Yahweh, the Lord, also invites his wife Sarah into the same journey of faith, assuring her that Abraham was going to become a father, and she, in her old age, a mother. So that's what the meal, so it's right after this meal that we read in verse 16, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them and set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now this seems a little weird, right? Is God second-guessing himself? Does he not know what he wants to do here? Let me ask you something. When was the last time someone said to you, I'm not sure if I should tell you this? What always happens immediately after they say that. They go and tell you the thing they weren't sure they were going to tell you. Like, and usually it's like super juicy and it's, you know, whatever. People tell you. So God is right now standing in front of Abraham in human form and he is interacting with Abraham the way a human would. All of God's communication to us is condescension. How could it be any other way? And so what is going on here? God is piquing Abraham's interest. God is getting Abraham involved in his plans. And isn't this just typical of God's character as we've seen him interact with Abraham? God initiated the invite when he called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. He initiates with him now even, with all the warmth and affection of a father. Yahweh reflects on how he invited Abraham into his world and into his life and how Abraham is now going to be used to invite many others into the kingdom of God. He says in verses 18 and 19, you know, should I tell him this? For Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. The good world that God has made is now in the throes of rebellion. And Sodom is a case study. And as God looks at this world and its sorry state of affairs, 
he reflects on his long-term rescue plan. He reflects on this long plan to reestablish his kingdom here on the earth. And it starts with an old man and his barren wife. Doesn't it make you think of Jesus' words when he talks about the kingdom in Matthew 13? The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. So what is God doing here? He's treating Abraham in the way that he had always intended to treat humanity. He's inviting Abraham into his plans. He's inviting him into his rightful place as co-ruler over the earth. That's what God did when he made humanity in the garden in the first place. Let us make man in our image. He's inviting Abraham and his descendants into his heart. In fact, that's exactly where Abraham goes in this intimate interaction with Yahweh. And so we see the Lord intimately invites Abraham into his plans in verses 20 through 23 when he says, Because the outcry against Sodom is very great and their sin very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. For the men turned, so the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near. Yahweh extends his invitation to Abraham. And as his witnesses leave toward Sodom, Abraham comes before the Lord and he draws near. Like what, what a picture of prayer, right? You stand before the Lord and you draw near. You know, what does this intimacy do to Abraham? For Abraham, it, it creates boldness and humility. I mean, look at it with Abraham. He boldly goes before God and starts questioning him like, ah, are you really planning on doing this? But Okay, what, what about this? What, what about this? What about this? Abraham is, in one sense, unashamed as he approaches God. And the reason that he is unashamed is for the same reason that he is humble. It's because he's approaching God on the basis of who God is. Somehow Abraham already knows that Yahweh is the judge of all the earth. And, and asks Abraham in verse 25, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Knowing that God is a just God, he appeals to him on the basis of his own character. Do you do that when you stand before him? Do you appeal to his own character in your prayers? It certainly emboldened Abraham's prayers, and it humbled him too. You see it over and over again, that even as Abraham gets right in God's face over and over, he does it in such a humble way. Verse 27, I who am but dust and ashes. Verse 30, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Verse 32, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but this once. Who are the people that you can be both humble and bold around? Who are the people who will allow you to get in their face without getting angry at you? Who lets you try and understand them like this? Guesses? It's your friends. You have interactions like this with your friends. And so throughout the rest of the Bible, Abraham is referred to 
as a friend of God. Each time Abraham approaches God, what is he doing here? He's exploring his relationship with him. He's exploring the character of God. Do you do this when you pray? I think this story is here to tell us that we should. And so what does he find out about God? Well, he actually finds quite a bit about God. He finds out quite a bit about God as he intercedes for Sodom. Look at how Abraham starts his prayer. He stands before God's holy presence and questions him. Verses 23 and 25. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fares the wicked do. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So what is intercession? I've used that word a few times now. Um, The dictionary defines intercession as the action of intervening on behalf of another. The action of intervening on behalf of another. And so in our case, when it comes to intercessory prayer, we have three elements. We have one who prays, one who listens, and one who needs help. Abraham enters into intercession for Sodom. He goes to the Lord and asks him, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? You know, certainly at some level here, Abraham's main concern is for the righteous in the city of Sodom. But what is he asking here? Is he asking that God just take the righteous out of the city and then destroy the rest? No. He is asking that the whole city would be spared on account of the righteous few. Abraham is actually approaching God here and he is questioning social norms. Like, what do I mean by that? Okay, so in the ancient world, things like corporate guilt... Those were well understood. So you have a small city underneath the rule of a great king and a few people in that city disobey that king. That whole city is going to pay the price for it. That's just common, normal things in the ancient world. And we even see stories like this in the Old Testament, right? But what is Abraham doing here? He is turning this pattern on its head. He's not asking that the city be destroyed because of the wicked many, but he's asking that it be spared for the sake of the righteous few. And Abraham begins exploring this concept that will continue to unfold throughout the rest of the Bible. Can the righteousness of another save me? And so what is Yahweh's response? You know, almost every sermon I've heard, every commentary I've read about this interaction between Abraham and God, they they all talk about it as though they're bargaining. It's like, I mean, if that's the case, God is terrible at bargaining. Like, just the worst. (laughs) Like, like, if it were a bargain, it would go something like this. Abraham would say, will you spare it for 50? And then God would reply, how about 100? But that's not what happens, is it? What does Yahweh do instead? Will you spare it for 50? Okay. You can see Abraham's almost taken aback. Like, oh, okay, okay. Um, 45? Sure. Okay, okay. 40. Yeah. Okay. 30. You got it. And he does this all the way down to 10, right? So what does this tell Abraham about the character of God? What does it tell you about the character of God? 
Does it look like God is stingy with his mercy? Does it look like he's hesitant to give it away? No. (laughs) God is more than willing to spare the whole city of Sodom for the sake of the righteous few. And in this role of intercession on behalf of Sodom, we actually see Abraham beginning to live out his identity and his destiny as a blessing for the nations. In August 1806, five college students gathered together in a field near Williams College in Massachusetts. Uh, They got together to discuss foreign missions. It's kind of a weird stage in church history. Uh, Foreign missions has sort of become this foreign concept. And so they're only beginning to rediscover that Christ's great commission meant to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. And so they get together, and then this sudden, violent summer thunderstorm comes and just sweeps through their meetings. So the students run, trying to find cover, and there's this massive haystack. And underneath that haystack was a little cove where a bunch of cows had just eaten out a a little portion of it. And in that haystack, the five gathered together, stood before God, and drew near to him for the sake of the nations where Christ had not been named. They continued to meet there from that day on. As a result of these meetings, America's first foreign missionary society was founded. This led to a movement of foreign missionaries that left America and brought the gospel to lands where it had never been heard. If they founded hospitals and schools. They created written languages for oral cultures who had no written language. They invented alphabets for people so that they could give people the word of God in their own tongue. And today, untold millions have received the mercy and grace of Christ because of the intercession of these five young college students, none of whom had even received any formal seminary training at that point. All because they stood before God, drew near to him, and interceded on behalf of the nations. And so let me ask you, do you pray like this? Do you stand before God and draw near to him? Do you appeal to him on the basis of his own love for mercy? Do you take your rightful place standing near God and participating in his rule over this earth? Through prayer. Is this your prayer pattern? And so how do we apply this? Like, how do we pattern our lives on the basis of this? Well, many of you guys know that we as pastors, every Tuesday morning, we get together and on top of having meetings, we pray for you as a church. And so what I want to do is invite you guys to come with us Tuesday morning, 6 a.m., here, to pray for the city of Fort Collins and to pray for the nations. We won't know what God has in store for our church. We won't know how he'll use us to bless the city of Fort Collins or the nations of this world unless we come before him and draw near. So won't you please join me? So act two, this fallen world needs our intercession. I mean, the sinful city of Sodom certainly did. Oh, I, oh man, Um, my notes are all messed up. We'll go with this. Okay, caveat. I want to address something right out of the gate here. Um, Because of the sin we're about to read about and because of the way the, the word Sodom has been used in our own English language, and since... These things are such thorny issues in our day. I want to say something by quoting someone else. <laughs> okay, um, Regarding the whole topic of homosexuality, which is part of the sin of Sodom, it's not the whole thing, it's part though, 
David Watson, this tender-hearted biblical scholar, he said this, Tragically, the church has all too often adopted the social and worldly hostilities against homosexuals. Under the cloak of righteousness, it has shown little of the love and compassion of Christ. As Christians, we have often been self-righteous, censorious, and condemning. We've quoted texts with severity rather than sensitivity. We have preached and not listened. I see the need for the church to repent deeply for unloving and hypocritical attitudes, which compound both the frustrations and loneliness of many, and at the same time denies the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose tenderness and love is free for all. And all the millennials said, Amen. All right. So, with that said, um, we do live in strange times. We're saying anything at all that contradicts the morals of our own cultural elites is condemned as hate speech. And so a few pages after this quote, Watson goes on to give us this warning. It is here that the church, in its compassionate swing away from self-righteous judgments, can become thoroughly confused concerning God's self-revealed standards. One practicing homosexual admitted later to me, having repented of his homosexual behavior, that, quote, the last thing I wanted was Christians to condone what I was doing. So bear that in mind, and with that, we'll go on to the sin of Sodom. I'm parched. How's everyone doing? Still with me? Okay, thank you. I will. Good, sir. So what is the nature of Sodom's sin? The author has already been priming the pump for us here. Back in Genesis 13, 13, we were told, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners before the Lord. And we read why the Lord is concerned with Sodom in in chapter 18, verses 20 and 21, when he says, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin very grave, I will go down there to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And then again in chapter 19, verse 13, after the angels have seen Sodom for themselves, they say to Lot, For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord. Okay, quiz class. What word do you keep hearing over and over again in there? Outcry. Thank you. Well done. Okay. Now, put on your thinking caps. When was the last time in Genesis that we heard about an outcry? Anyone have a guess? Cain and Abel. Yes. The blood of Abel cried out from the ground to Yahweh, right? After his brother slew him. Okay, so... um. Then we have this weird little phrase. Okay, bookmark that idea. Just put it there, okay? Um, Then we have this other phrase in verse 21 where it says that God is going to go down to check out what's going on in Sodom. So, okay, extra credit here, class. When was the last time God went down to see what was going on inside of a city? Babel! I don't don't know why I did that. <laughs> so so excited that our other one of our other pastors knows the answer. <laughs> oh man! All right, so, so very good, well done, Daniel. So what do we make of this? What are the patterns here? The outcry indicates that the people of Sodom are practicing oppression, injustice, and violence. That is the phrase used throughout the rest of the Old Testament. The outcry, the outcry, the outcry of the oppressed. 
has reached the ears of the Lord. It's the outcry of the Israelites underneath the oppression of the Egyptians that reaches his ears and causes him to go in and intervene on their behalf. Okay, so, so that's what the outcry is all about. And when God comes down to Sodom, uh, oh, actually, let me, let me throw this in here too. Um, you're supposed to make that connection to Abel. Like the author put that word in here so that you would immediately think of Abel and being, being murdered by his brother because Sodom is being built on the blood of the oppressed. Okay? And so when God comes down to Sodom, it's designed to show you that this city has become totally self-absorbed, like the city of Babel, where the man tried, where man tried to make a name for himself. <laughs> People are shaking their heads. I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> uh, but I, that's the point. Like, it's the city of Cain. It's the city of Babel all over again. Don't believe me? Hear what the prophet Ezekiel has to say about Sodom in chapter 16, verses 49 through 50. He's actually prophesying to the city of Jerusalem, which was supposed to be the city of God, but he calls Sodom her sister. So listen to this. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excessive food, and prosperous ease but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. They had become prideful, overfed. They dwelled in luxury and whittled their lives away with entertainment. Does this sound familiar to you? And ultimately, because they had traded out God for worldly luxury, God gave them over to defiling passions. And they did abomination before him. They were given over to their violence, and they were given over to their sexual lust. Sodom is the kingdom of man. It is the kingdom of self-concern. And the pattern of self-concern leads to some of the most vile practices humanly imaginable. The kingdom of self-concern will always become a kingdom of unrighteousness. Which stands in stark contrast here to what God's plans are for Abraham. Again, verse 19 of chapter 18. I have chosen him so that he may keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And in fact, that is exactly what God does when he sends his angels down to Sodom. You know, it's not because God didn't know what was going on down there, right? Like, again, communication through condescension. What he's doing here is giving Abraham an object lesson in righteousness. It's a pattern to follow. When God gives his law to Abraham's descendants, one of the most important things he gives the Israelites in the law is the requirement for two to three witnesses to establish any case in a court of law. You can read that in Deuteronomy 17 and in Deuteronomy 19, and it's picked, on, picked up again all over the Old Testament and the New Testament. So that is to say... Before judgments are made, we need to see several independent lines of evidence before making our judgments. And my goodness, has this been a weird week for that? Like this whole bizarre story about Jesse Smollett and, you know, faking his own racist and homophobic attack on the streets of Chicago. You got, I mean, it's on the news. Everyone's seen this, right? Okay, okay. So here's the, here's the thing about that story. Many people believed Jesse right away because of their biases. Many people disbelieved Jesse right away because of their biases. And so where is it now? It's in court where the lines of evidence can be brought forth 
to a jury, and it can be adjudicated upon. So we'll see how it goes. But honestly, like, I mean, how much does that really affect your guys' day-to-day life? Like, it's, it's a little weird, some stuff in the headlines, but day-to-day, who cares? The more real concern that I have for us as a church and for me as a pastor is, is that when you try to establish and cultivate the sort of community that we're aiming for here at The Crossing, there will always be opportunities for partial truths, misconceptions, and outright lies to disrupt and defile our fellowship. Now, I'm sure plenty of you can think of stories in your own workplace, your church, your life, your families, where a partial truth got out there and the effect of it was devastating on you, on your friendships, on your community. So what do we, what do, we do instead? We withhold judgment until the facts have been established. Proverbs 18.17 is arguably the most useful verse that I've ever come across as a pastor. It says this, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. And so God, wanting to establish righteousness on this earth, does the righteous thing by sending two witnesses to Sodom. And boy, are the things they witness unsettling. So this is the case against Sodom here. Um, What do we see? I'm just going to recap it for you. The angels enter the city and are greeted in the gate by Abraham's nephew, Lot. They say that they're planning on sleeping in the town square, but Lot knows his city. And he knows that what would happen to them if they stayed there. So he compels them to come and stay with him that evening and urges them to leave early in the morning, probably in the hopes that no one would see them. In the evening hours after they eat, the men of the city, young and old, from all squares, every one of them to the last man, come knocking on his door, demanding to know Lot's guests. Some of your guys' translations do the, the legwork for you and translate it as, bring them out here in order that we might have sex with them. You know, the word know here, it's a Hebrew phrase that can mean having sexual relations or it can just mean knowing. Okay? So how do we know that the men wanted to violently rape these two strangers. It's because of Lot's disgusting offer. Lot tells them, do not act so wickedly, my brothers. Here. Sorry. Take my daughters who have not known a man and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men. this, This is a vile offer from Lot. It violates every sacred bond of trust that a father should have with his daughters. It's disgusting, and you should remember that because we're going to return to it. All that to say, the men of Sodom wanted to rape those visitors. Verse 9, the men of the city replied a lot, This guy came to sojourn with us, and now he's become the judge? I should note here, Lot is not the judge that they should be worried about, is he? But don't we see this in our own day? When you take a stand against culturally validated wickedness, don't we hear this same thing? Who made you judge? Doesn't your Bible say judge not? They go on. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And so they press against Lot, but the angels reach out their hands and pull Lot back into the house and strike the men of the city with temporary blindness. And they wear themselves out trying to grasp the door. The angels have witnessed enough. They tell Lot to find his family and take them out of the city. This is what they see in Sodom. And so what is the right response to a whole 
culture of people who have given themselves over to such a profoundly wicked way of life. It's judgment. Verse 24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up uh, like the smoke of a furnace. I think I said verse 27 twice. It's verse 24 and verse 27 that I just read there. Continues. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out in the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Okay. Everyone still with me? Coffee? Okay. I'm not, I'm honestly not kidding. Like, um, I think you guys really should pay attention to this. Uh, a survey in Britain in the 1990s revealed that the reason that people stopped going to church was not because of the scientific revolution. It wasn't because of Darwinism. It wasn't because of anything like that. The English stopped going to church because they couldn't believe in a God who would judge and condemn people to hell. And perhaps that's where you find yourself today. A God of love and mercy, yes, great, awesome. But a God of judgment, not my thing. There are many who feel that God can't be a loving God if he's willing to judge and condemn people. But let me turn that on its head. I don't think God could be a loving God unless he carries out judgment on the wicked. Would it be loving of God to allow the outcry of the oppressed to remain unheard? Would it be loving of God to allow the violence of a nation to continue to grow and multiply? Would it be loving of God to let a city like this to continue to exist in luxury? Would it be loving of God to allow the good world that he had made continue to be defiled and corrupted and left unchecked? Is that loving? Or would it be loving for God to purify the world that he made? And of course... That's what fire does. Abraham sees the smoke of the city rise like the fire of a furnace used to purify dross out of silver. He sees the infection of sin from this world being removed by fire and brimstone. You see, this type of violence, this type of oppression, this type of self-concern, this sort of way that Sodom used money, power, and sex has no place in God's good world. It has no place in the kingdom of God. It does not fit the pattern. So I was trying to think of a good illustration here to recap this story, but here's the thing. For the whole rest of the Bible, this story is the illustration of what God will do when we live for the kingdom of self and the kingdom of man. This story sets the pattern for what will occur when you hoard your resources, when you use your strengths, when you exploit your money and your sexuality in ways that are entirely self-serving. And that's exactly why the Apostle Paul would write something like he did in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, where he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, because of our particular cultural moment, the things like sexual immorality, adultery, 
uh, people who practice homosexuality, those are the things that pop out to us, right? Those are the things that kind of get us all you know, tight in the shoulders. But what about the other characteristics here? What about the greedy and materialistic? What about the reviler? Do you guys know what that is? It's a gossip. Gossips will not inherit the kingdom of God. Or the swindlers, which the joke is made far too often, Dustin, so I won't do it. The swindlers will not receive the kingdom of God, for they won't inherit it. Swindlers here is not talking about people who practice business illegally. It's talking about people who practice business ruthlessly. It's talking about the greedy and materialistic. And so you have this dichotomy in our culture today where liberal institutions tend to think about the things like sexual habits uh, to, to moralize these things. It's just frankly kind of stupid. It's private business or whatever. As long as they're consenting, who cares? But then they go on to talk about how greed and materialism are the greatest problems facing our world. And then let's be honest, conservative institutions like evangelical churches tend to put this huge emphasis on sexual purity and sexual sin. And, you know, we're mostly... I mean, let's be honest, we're mostly apathetic when it comes to greed and materialism. Like, when was the last time you guys heard a sermon here where someone challenged you to sell your house, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me? It's tempting to read this list as a list of things that will keep you out of heaven when you die. But is that what Paul is saying? What do these things have in common? To quote Tim Keller, every single one of these things put the individual above the community, okay? Paul here is not talking about heaven. He's talking about the kingdom. And in the kingdom of God, things like sex, money, and power are used in completely life-giving ways. It's a question of what kingdom defines the pattern of your life, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Sodom. Because ultimately, you will inherit the kingdom that you model, And isn't it just beautiful the way that Paul describes the believers in Corinth when he tells them, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So a lot of young folks today, you all have seen the hypocrisies of the church, and so you want to be an advocate. You want to intercede for your homosexually tempted brothers and sisters. You want to know, you want to know what the best possible thing you could do for your homosexually tempted friends, you could practice purity in your heterosexuality. You could use your heterosexuality in life-giving ways. I mean, can you even imagine, let's just empathize here for a second. Can you imagine the type of pressure that a homosexually tempted individual has in a culture that is telling them that they just need to embrace who they are? They have that going on the one hand, and on the other hand, they exist inside a church where they fear that if they mess up once and give themselves over to a night of passion, that's it for them. They're cut off, they're gone, they're out of the church. Can you imagine that tension? Can you imagine that frustration? And can you imagine it while they see their heterosexual brothers and sisters messing it up over and over again with little to no consequence? What do you think that does to them? This is why... Your sexuality isn't your own. Your body's not your own. That's what Paul tells us. Imagine the good you could do for your homosexual friends, to use a modern phrase here, if your sexuality was oriented toward the kingdom of God. Just think about that. 
And so let me just illustrate from my own life briefly. My wife and I, we did not do things perfectly, but we prioritized purity, and we didn't share our first kiss until we had been together for 10 months. Now, why did we wait so long? Was it so that I could use it as a sermon illustration and get all of you to think very highly of me? No. That, that would actually be the kingdom of Sodom, just wearing religious robes. That is not why we did that. My wife and I refrained because I knew all the ways that I had compromised in my college years, and I knew what it was like to be a citizen of Sodom. I saw how far I had gone down the path of using my own sexuality, my own money, my own intellect in completely self-serving ways, and I was terrified at what I saw in myself. I wanted my relationship with Jess to serve the kingdom of God, not myself. But this can get complicated, can't it? And boy, does it get complicated in the life of Lot. And so we move quickly to the legacy of Lot. I, I promise I'll try to be fast. <sighs> this odd character and his legacy. My goodness. Um, Lot, in so many ways, exemplifies the pattern of the compromised believer. You have a Bible, so you can read it for yourself. But for the sake of time, let me just list some observations from Lot's life. See Lot's compromise here. You recall that Genesis, in Genesis 13, when Abraham and Lot separated, Abraham chose to trust God and let Lot make the decision for where he would take his herds and his cattle and all that sort of stuff. So Lot lifted his eyes, and he saw the cities of the plain and Sodom, and he saw that they were like the garden of God. He saw that they were like Eden itself. And so Lot pursued it. And famously, or perhaps infamously, he went from settling near Sodom in chapter 13 to dwelling in Sodom in chapter 14. And now we see him sitting at the gates of Sodom in chapter 19. In the decades that have passed, he, not only has he moved into the kingdom of Sodom, but he's now a prominent member in that society. But the problem here is not so much that Lot was moving further and further into Sodom. The problem was that Sodom was moving further and further into Lot. So yes, he seems like a great host when the angels arrive, at least better than the rest of the people of Sodom. Bravo, I guess. But as the mob outside his door screams that, that he hand over the men, you and I are both rightfully disgusted when he offers up his daughters, his virginal daughters, who, let's face it, in a town like Sodom, probably means they're prepubescent. He offers up these girls to the roars of a violent mob. We are supposed to be disgusted with this man at this point. The crowd mocks him, probably because they recognize his hypocrisy, like, oh yeah, he's willing to embrace Sodom so long as it profits him, but now he's going to sit in judgment over us. Okay, whatever, dude. Unbelievers have an uncanny ability to recognize and call out hypocrisy in the lives of compromised believers. The angels pull him in and tell him to get everyone he knows and get out. He tells his sons, uh, rather his sons-in-law, who've been betrothed to his daughters, but they thought he was joking. Is it too much to assume that Lot was always kind of joking? Is it too much to assume that Lot was just a little too willing to laugh at the sort of jokes that break God's heart? Is it too much to assume that Lot regularly made light of the things that God takes very seriously? Regardless, they don't heed his warning, and they stay. And then we read this incredible statement in chapter 19, verse 16, where the angels at the break of day, are urging him to leave. And it says that Lot still lingered. 
is like a child trying to get them out of the house. Like my daughter, uh, I can tell her like, Emmy, there's a fireball coming for our house. She's like, I want new boots. (sighs) You're supposed to be annoyed with him at this point. As they leave the city, the angels tell him to go to the mountains and hide there. And then this weasley little man turns to them and says, I can't do that. I mean, I, mean, I, I, I can't. Look at me. I can't do that. Here. What about this city? I mean, it's a, it's a small city. Look, look how small it is. Isn't it small? It's small. Let me just stay in the small city. It'll be fine. And so the angels relented. And Lot was able to stay in his own little Sodom. You should be angry with him at this point. Here's the problem. Lot loved his little Sodom. I mean, his wife certainly did. When, when it says that she turned back and became a pillar of salt, I think the sense here is that it's not like she just accidentally turned around to see what was going on and then, blam, God got her. It's like, boom, salt. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think that's, that's what you should get out of this. I think she went back. The angel said they wouldn't destroy Sodom until Lot was safe in the small city. Where's his wife? Behind him, it says. I think she turned back. The, the region of Sodom famously sat on this fault line. And with all the petroleum reserves in that region and, and all the salt deposits underneath the earth, it's quite possible that when God's judgment came, it ruptured that fault line and the land opened up and the mixture of fire, oil, and salts from that region would have scorched and crystallized everything in the area. Lot's wife became a pattern for all of those who love the things and kingdoms of this world more than the kingdom of God. She became a monument to it. And so when Jesus warns his followers to leave Jerusalem, when they see the signs of the overthrow by the Romans for their own judgment, he says this in Luke 17, 31 through 33. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will keep it. Lot's wife could not fathom her life outside of the comforts of Sodom, so she never had to. Probably the most perplexing thing in this whole affair is that the New Testament refers to Lot as righteous. Second Peter 2.7, Peter says that God rescued righteous Lot. Like, righteous, righteous Lot? Righteous Lot? Like, are you, are you kidding me right now? Like, Peter, what Bible are you reading? At what point in this story has he been righteous? At this point, like, I, I am just angry with Lot. Like, Lot is not righteous. Why did God rescue him? Doesn't, doesn't he see how compromised Lot is? Doesn't, oh, doesn't he see what he just did to his daughters? Doesn't he see what he's about to do to his daughters? Like, what is wrong with you, God? Lot does not deserve mercy. And there it is. Lot doesn't deserve mercy. No one deserves mercy. If you deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy. Verse 16, the Lord being merciful to him. 
So I mentioned earlier that a lot of people get upset with a God who judges. But honestly, I think we actually get upset with a God who has mercy on someone like Lot. And in the kingdom of God, there are going to be people who did things that were far worse than what Lot did, believe it or not. And this is upsetting because deep down, all of us want to believe that God saves us because he sees something special inside of us and worth saving about us. Friends, God chose you for the same reason he chose Abraham. He chose you because he chose you. He loves you because he loves you. Let that sink in and humble you. Because it's the only way you'll be able to confidently draw near to God. Our beef isn't with God's judgment. It's with his mercy. Our beef is with God's godness. Because just like Adam and Eve, deep down, we all think that we could do a better job at being God than God does. And that's the pattern of human existence in this fallen world. And so we see by the end of the story that Abraham's prayer actually was answered. For it says that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. The city of Zoar, little Sodom as I've called it, was the only one of the five cities of the plain that was spared that day. And it was spared for the sake of righteous Lot. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The epilogue on this story is disturbing. I mean, after all the intense action of the previous story, we end up in the stillness of a dark, dank cave. His poor daughters, I mean, for crying out loud, like, it is terrifying. As someone who just absolutely adores his daughter, like, it is terrifying for me to think about the sort of damage a bad father can do in their daughter's lives. And so we get a small snippet of it when he offered them up to the angry mob. But, I mean, seriously, what do you think that means for the rest of their relationship? If he's willing to do that, what other ways have he compromised in his relationship with them? Anyway, uh, essentially what happens is in the cave is the rebirth of Sodom. In an act of sexual per- perversion fit only for a place like Sodom, Lot impregnates his daughters. Yes, the city itself was burned to the ground, but the pattern of Sodom still lived on in the hearts of Lot and his daughters. What we see here is what we've seen over and over and over again throughout the book of Genesis since Adam and Eve ate from the tree. Humans, rather than listening to God, listen to their own wisdom. In Lot's case, rather than trusting God's word when he said he wouldn't destroy little Zoar, he flees to the hills because it says he was afraid. And this bad decision ends up guiding the bad decisions of his daughters. In their own wisdom, they get their father drunk and they get themselves pregnant. What? The point here is that when humans operate in their own wisdom and try to define good and evil for themselves, then dark, twisted, messed up, ugly, and deadly things are bound to happen. This is the pattern of humanity's endeavor to be God. We are not fit to be him. And so the legacy of Lot is this story and his two sons, Moab, which means literally from the father, and Ben-Ami, which means from my people. So what we have here are the patterns of God's judgment. We're going to wrap up soon. Uh, One pattern is the pattern of wrath and fire, burning up everything in an instant. The other, outer darkness, wasting away, utter lostness. What we have here are pictures of the two metaphors that Jesus used most when he talked about the judgment to come. 
we see the fire of God's wrath come down and consume all the injustice, oppression, and unrighteousness of this world. And we see the outer darkness of a cave. We see isolation and discommunity, fire and darkness. Lot's problem was the problem of many today. His life was divided between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self-interest. The art of the Christian life is to learn how to live in the kingdoms of this world without living for the kingdoms of this world. Let me say that again. The pattern and the art of the Christian life is learning how to live in the kingdoms of this world without living for the kingdoms of this world. And so how do we do this? Ladies, show of hands. Who went to the, the women's retreat? All right, good. Good number of you. How happy are you to come back to this sermon? <laughs> yeah. I, for those of you who don't know, the, the theme they had was beholding Christ. Spent Friday and Saturday beholding Christ. So let's end this by beholding Christ together from the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Behold Christ, our intercessor. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Behold Christ, the friend of sinners. Behold Christ, the righteous one who cries out, spare the many for my sake. Behold Christ, as when God visited the house of Abraham, Christ is the one who stands at our door and knocks and says, for those of us who hear his voice, he will come in and eat with you and you with him. Behold Christ, unafraid to enter into the mess of this world and use its twisted branches for his own glorious ends. He is the offspring of Ruth the Moabitess, whose forefather was conceived in an act of incest. Behold Christ, the one who comes into all the ugliness of this world and pours out his blood for her sins and scars. Behold Christ, the one who came down from heaven to a city not to destroy it, but to let it destroy him. And now he builds the city of God with his own blood. Behold Christ, who gave himself up to the violent shouts of a mob, not so that he could condemn them, but so that he could become the final sacrifice for their sins. Behold Christ, the father to the fatherless, husband to the widow, health to the sick, grace to the sinner, peace to the vexed, comfort to the afflicted, joy to the sorrowful, wholeness to the broken. Behold Christ, who said, I did not come into this world to judge the world, but to save the world. Behold him upon the cross as the fire of God's judgment was poured out on him while we were spared. Behold the outcry of Christ as he enters into his own darkness when the light of light God's, when the light of God's presence is taken away from him and given to us as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And behold Christ emerging from the dark cave, resurrected in body a sign that the kingdoms of this world will never prevail over the kingdom of our God. Once these truths settle upon you, then and only then will you be able to begin to pattern your life after the ways of the kingdom of God. Before you do anything for the kingdom of God, you must first behold Christ. From there, learn to use your time your resources, your houses, your cars, your money, your education, your job, your sexuality, your relationships, your family, your life. Learn to use these things in the service of the kingdom of God, in the service of God our Father, Christ our Savior, and the Spirit our Helper. And use, learn to use these things to serve your neighbors who need to know and experience these truths 
lest they be lost to the fire and outer darkness of the kingdom of self-concern. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you sufficiently humbled at the truth of your word. I thank you that my listeners were able to bear with me for this long. I pray that in however long this took, that maybe a minute, maybe two minutes, maybe three minutes were useful to people, that maybe eternal truths were spoken in such a way that they would rest and settle upon the hearts of your people and instruct them in the way of righteousness, instruct them in the ways of the kingdom of God, and teach us how to fight for our faith in the midst of a corrupt world. And so, God, please, for those who don't know you, I man, I, I, I just feel bad for unbelievers here, not because of the judgment, but mostly because they had to listen to me talk for an hour about it. I pray that whether because of or in spite of this sermon, they would come to reckon with you. They'd come to humble their hearts before you as I intercede for them here. Would you bless them? Would you give them hearts of softness, a mind of understanding? Would you give this church the ability, the power, and the love to use our time and our resources to serve this great city and to serve the nations of this world? Would you multiply our endeavors? Would you help us like the mustard seed to continue to grow and expand and have greater and greater influence by calling people in this world out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved son? And it's in his name we pray. Amen.